As we're continuing through Genesis and looking specifically at Joseph's story, we're coming up to a section where Joseph is going to begin to get, he's beginning the process, or the process is beginning where he'll be reconciled to his brothers. He, it's a long road, reconciliation. It's a long road to get to a place of where you're getting on with someone again or that you're brought back into right relationship with somebody, especially when they've really hurt you, especially when they've done something so negative against you. And, and I, I want to be clear because as we talk about these things, we're talking about heavy things. We're going to potentially bring up subjects that are not easy for us to deal with. I'm not talking about... PG-13 subjects or subjects that are too adult in context. I'm talking about just a reality that, that, that we have, we as people have been hurt deeply. All of us probably have stories to tell. And even me saying that makes some of you a bit nervous because you're thinking, okay, I don't want to bring that up. I don't want to rehash any of that. And some of us have hurt others so deeply that we don't want that to be brought out. We don't want to be exposed in that. But I, I want you to remember as we're talking about what's happening here in Genesis 42, when Joseph's brothers go to Egypt because of this famine, I want you to not forget the context. I don't, I don't want you to forget what Joseph has gone through. I don't want you to forget that Joseph was uh, the favored son of his father. He, he loved his father. His father loved him. Uh, to a fault, had given him this, this coat that showed that he was blessed. And, and he, he, in showing his brothers, provoked their jealousy. And they beat him and threw him into a pit for several days and then sold him off to be a slave. And, and when we pick it up here in, in chapter 42, there's been some 20 years that have passed since that time. 20 years since he's seen his father. 20 years since his brothers betray him. And I'm bringing this up not to, to be overdramatic. I'm bringing this up because this topic of reconciliation needs to be seen in its practical and concrete ways. It can't just be this, this theoretical idea. It can't just be this, this thing of, oh yeah, reconciliation is a really important principle. We have to look at this in the nitty-gritty. We have to be willing to say, okay, if this is what God says is needed, then I have to make reconciliation. I've got to get things right with the people that I've hurt or have hurt me. We pick it up in chapter one of verse uh, of chapter. I'm sorry, verse one of chapter forty-two, and it says, "And when Jacob, that's Joseph's father, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another?' For he and he said, "Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt, and and go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die." Now, you get this picture of these men looking at each other, and please don't picture a bunch of teenagers or something, okay? Like, well, I've got nothing else to do. Like playing video games and not being responsible. These are grown men. Some of these guys are in their 50s. These are grown men with families on their own, okay? They have grown men, families on their own, and yet they're in the midst of a famine. Jacob has heard, he's, he's an older man, yet he's heard that there's, there's plenty of grain stored in Egypt, and so... He says, why don't you guys go down there and buy some lest we die? Look, we don't want to die from this famine. We have money. Go buy the food and bring it back. And they're all looking at each other. Now, part of this is, is this idea that there's probably some guilt involved here. They hear Egypt and they go, oh. 
Maybe that's where our little brother is meant to be. But also there's this reality that here they are in a place where they're not being the most responsible of adults. If there's famine in your house, like really people could starve to death, you should go buy food if you have money. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're not being very responsible. And so Joseph, he, he sends in verse 3, Joseph, Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. I should say Jacob sent them. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And so, so we see here, here's Jacob, and he's still sort of showing favoritism. He thinks Joseph's dead, of course, but he's showing favoritism to Joseph's full brother, Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin was the brother that was born to Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, if you guys remember. And so just as Rachel was his favorite wife, the wife that he had worked hard for, but then was tricked and had to marry her sister Leah, when, uh, the, the Rachel, when Rachel finally had a child in Joseph, Joseph became the favorite child. Of course, Joseph is out of the picture as far as Jacob is thinking. And so now Benjamin becomes that favorite child. And it's important to see what's going on here because here we have a situation where you, you see Jacob's family and you see there's a lot of irresponsibility here. There's a lot of dysfunction still going on here. And that's important because it, it reminds us that there's always going to be this need for re, uh, reconciliation. All of us can be irresponsible in our relationships. I know I can. Me too. <laughs> right on. All of us can be irresponsible in our relationships. We, we can be those who, who don't provide the way God calls us to provide for our families, especially as dads and husbands. And I'm not just talking about physically providing, but you know our first responsibility as Christian dads is to provide for our family spiritually, to be praying for them and encouraging them that they can trust God, that He's good, and demonstrating the trustworthiness of God. But also, we can be guilty, as Jacob was, of, of still kind of showing favoritism or, or, or being or continuing a dysfunction in a relationship that we maybe should have known better, we should have learned our lesson, but here we are two decades later and we're still making the same mistake, still showing favoritism to one of the children. We can do this. We are capable, guys, we prove it on a daily basis that we are capable of not relating to one another rightly. And because we don't relate to one another rightly, what does that mean? That means we all need to learn to practice reconciliation. It's not a one-time thing. It's not just when things get really bad. There's a need for us to reconcile with one another. And it says now in verse 5, it says, And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So there's this picture, of course, that all the lands, we, we saw this last week, all the lands around Egypt were experiencing this famine. They didn't have food to eat. And because God had given Joseph this wisdom, there was this food available now that they could go and buy. So you see this picture of the sons of Israel, uh, these ten sons traveling down amongst, uh, amongst a whole lot of other people from the land of Canaan going to Egypt to buy. But there's something going on here specifically. Here's a common sort of trial for all the people of the land, all those who are in the land of Canaan, not just the sons of Israel, but all those people. They're going through this common trial of, of famine, but God's using it for something. God's using it to expose they have and that they had this need of reconciliation. That's what God's wanting to do. And I wonder if some of you guys are in that same boat. You're in maybe, maybe you're in a time of famine. Maybe you're in a time of financial need. And you're going, why is this happening? Why are things so tough right now? And maybe what God's wanting to do is expose the need for reconciliation in one of your relationships. 
So there's, there's this reality when it comes to reconciliation that all of us need to practice it. And God will use circumstances to expose when those things haven't been dealt with yet. Then it says in verse 6, Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold all the people, uh, sold, I'm sorry, it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And then he said, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, I want you to think about this. Here's a situation where there's definitely, gonna, there's definitely this need for reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And so we can see... Uh, why we can have hope for this. It's like God's kind of set the whole scene so there can be hope for this reconciliation. And and I want you to think about this because this is what can happen. Sometimes there can be so much time passed in in a a relationship. There can be so much brokenness. We can think, there's no way that's ever going to get fixed. There's no way that's ever going to get reconciled. And yet God sovereignly can move in the situation to put you in circumstances where things have to get reconciled. In this case, what's going on is, of course, God just so happened at this perfect time, raised up Joseph when there's going to be this famine, given him this prophetic understanding of of the dreams that Pharaoh had. He's raised up to to, uh, collect all the the grain up when there's these seven years of plenty. It's stored all the way for now. They're in the midst of the seven years of famine. It's stored there, and it just so happens God's exalted him for this position at this time. But also we see there's this need for the brothers. The brothers have to go to Egypt. They have to go to this place. And who knows what they thought. Maybe they actually thought Joseph was already dead. But they definitely didn't expect to see him in Pharaoh's court. And so they get there and they don't recognize him. They don't see who he is. Don't forget, there's been 20 years past. Joseph was a a teenager when he was sold into slavery. Probably just started to have a bit of stubble on his face. And when they see him, he's completely clean-shaven, probably not just his beard, but his head, as they would do for the officials of Egypt. He had, the, as you've seen in the movies, the kind of eyeliner that the Egyptian kind of would wear to highlight the eyes. He's wearing Egyptian clothing. He looks completely different, so they don't recognize him. But God's doing something here. It's, this is a, a way that we can know there can be hope for reconciliation. We can know, guys, that even in our worst relationships, God can bring about reconciliation. Why? Because He's sovereign. You might not see how God's going to work out situations to where you can get on with somebody else, but God knows. And maybe God's working on those things even right now. Well, well then it says in verse 9, it says, And Joseph, it said, remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. Now, where do we read just earlier in verse 6? Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him. Do you remember the dream that Joseph actually had that made his brothers so mad? It wasn't just the fact that he was wearing this coat and said, look what dad gave me, and they got jealous. He actually explained to his brothers and to his father and mother these dreams that he had. He had a dream, right, of these seven sheaves uh, or these um, 12 sheaves of wheat coming and bowing down before this other sheaf of wheat. He had a dream of the sun and moon and 12 stars coming and bowing down before him. He had these dreams as a young person. And as as he communicates these dreams, really knowing these dreams have to be from God, as he communicates these dreams to his brothers, of course they get jealous. Even his mom and dad are like, hey, that's a bit cocky, you know. We're not going to be bowing down to you. And so basically they send him off. 
Now here it is 20 years later and what's coming to pass? Those very dreams. The dreams that Joseph had had are showing themselves to actually have been revelation from God. God was speaking to Joseph through those dreams. There's something prophetic in those dreams. Now this is important because again, this is the, the thing we want to also recognize about reconciliation. Not only does everybody need it, but the hope that we find for it Hope for reconciliation comes, one, because God is sovereign, but also, listen, two, because God has, ahead of time, revealed what his plan is. So, in Joseph's case, God showed him, here's a dream, your brothers are going to bow down to you. And he might have been thinking to himself when he had this dream, well, I'm going to be the favored son forever, and I'm going to rule the family, I'm going to be the one that maybe takes uh, this, this line through, this chosen line comes through me, and then eventually the, the one that's going to be born to bless the world that was promised to our grandfather Abraham is going to come through me. He might have been thinking spiritually he's going to be this guy. He might have been thinking maybe materially he's going to be that guy. But what's interesting is when it comes to pass, when God's revelation to Joseph comes to pass, it wasn't so much about Joseph being exalted as much as about he and his family being reconciled. I want you to think about that. In other words, I want you to think about this truth that the revelation of God is not so much about how great my life's going to be, but about how God's going to bring reconciliation with us, with him, and us with each other. That's the hope that we have. This is, this is the, the message of Scripture. When Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when he's giving that three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things he says in there, he says, listen, if you know that your brother has something against you and you have your offer, you have your, your offering to bring at the altar, leave it there. Don't offer it. Go and get right with your brother and then come back and make that offering. Showing that, listen, yeah, it's good to bring your offering to God, but listen, it doesn't mean anything if you're not willing to reconcile with your brother. We underestimate how much, how important this is to God. And because we underestimate how important this is to God, we devalue what He's provided for us to make reconciliation. I want you to think about this. Of course, it's no trouble for God to ever do anything. When God does stuff, there's no... It's no there's no loss of energy or something. He can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, okay? So God wasn't put out by doing this. But I do want you to see what God did. God organized this whole thing. Why? To bring us this picture of reconciliation. To bring Joseph back in right relationship with his brothers and his dad. This is what God did. There's hope for reconciliation because this is what God's desire is for us. That we be reconciled first to Him, but then to one another. God says that all throughout His Word. One of the reasons, guys, there's these 31 one another commands in the New Testament is because God knows He has to command, He has to command us, He has to tell us, you have to get on with each other because if He doesn't command that to us, we won't do it. We'll just live for ourselves. Our perspective won't be, I need to love this person as I would love myself, but our perspective would be, I need to get from this person what I can get to make my life as good as possible. And it's because we fall into that trap, because we go back to that kind of natural way of thinking and living, or oh, I need to get from this person whatever I can get, that we see, man, 
we break relationships and we're in desperate need of reconciliation. So there's this hope that comes up. And, and what happens, verse 9, it says, and so here's what Joseph says. And Joseph said to them, you are spies. So he's speaking roughly to him, and he's saying, you are spies, and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We all are one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. You come to see where we're vulnerable is what he's saying. And they said to him, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. In fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. So Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, you are spies. Now, we could read this and think, okay, Joseph's wanting to get a bit of vengeance now. He's like, okay, you stuck it to me. Twenty years later, it's my time. I'm going to stick it to you. But I don't think that's what's happening here. As, as the story unfolds, we're going to see, I don't think this is so much that Joseph is wanting to get vengeance as much as wanting to see where his brothers are at. Now again, this is another aspect of the, of the road to reconciliation. Okay, One, of course, is everyone needs it. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's hope in it because of God's sovereignty and his revelation. But the third thing, this is the thing that's diff- the most difficult, is that when it comes to reconciliation, it always involves pain. It always involves pain. And the first kind of pain it usually involves is this pain of testing. This pain of us being exposed. This pain of, of us having to maybe be even treated unfairly. I mean, on, on the surface, what Joseph is basically doing is falsely accusing his brothers. You guys are spies. He knows they're not spies. They're like, no, no, we just came to get some food. Nah, you guys are spies. You came here to, sp- to see if that we're vulnerable, if you, if you can take over. And so he, he's being quite harsh to them in a sense. He's, he's treating them unfairly. But look what happens in verse 15. He says, in this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring... Uh, bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And so he put them all in prison for three days. But notice he's testing them. He's wanting, it, it, it's that, uh, that word test is this idea of heating up metal, heating up a precious metal and seeing the impurities come to the top so you can scrape them away. It's heating it up so the impurities get exposed. He's testing them. He's wanting to see, have they actually changed? Is reconciliation even possible with these guys? And so it says in verse 18, Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live. Notice he says, For I fear God. Now this is interesting because Joseph saying this, this should have been a hint to them about what might be going on here. He didn't say, again, he didn't say, I fear raw the God of the Egyptians, the main God of the Egyptians. He says, I fear Elohim, I fear God. And in doing that, this should be a hint to them that God's trying to do something here. This is also a hint to us that Joseph's desire here is not vengeance, but justice. Not vengeance, but is see if can there be reconciliation. Can they get things right? He says, I fear God, verse 19, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers... 
be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So he's actually making a pretty fair deal to them. Saying, okay, look, I'm going to take you at your word. Leave one of your brothers for collateral. You guys go. Now it says in verse 21, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of our, uh, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. This brings us to the second kind of pain that comes with reconciliation. The first one was the pain of testing. This is the pain of guilt. And guilt is hard to live with, isn't it? It's interesting what's going on in their hearts and what God's doing here with this testing. They're saying to one another, "Man, we are guilty." This is happening to us because of how we treated our brother. Remember, they don't know that Joseph is their brother. They don't know that the person they're trying to buy grain from is their brother. But they're feeling this. In fact, there's an interesting word play here in the Hebrew when it says, and we saw the anguish of, our, uh, of his soul, and then it says, therefore this distress has come upon us. The word for anguish and the word for distress are the exact same word in Hebrew. And it's this idea if they're saying, what we did to him is now coming back to us. We're reaping what we've sown. And they feel this guilt. I want you to think about this because, guys, listen, it took these brothers 20 years to finally recognize their guilt. 20 years. I think about some of the things that I did 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. And I can understand how you can then realize, man, when I did that thing or when I treated that person this way, that was really evil. At the time, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Yeah, maybe you knew it was wrong, it wasn't that big a deal. But you look back now and you go, gosh, that was, that was really hideous. And when you're in that place, man, that guilt can be just overwhelming. In fact, it says in verse 22 that Reuben answers them. When they're talking about this, Reuben answers them and saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you will not listen to me? Therefore, his blood is now required of us. And that phrase is this idea. Remember, we saw that earlier in Genesis 9. When God says, look, if somebody murders somebody, uh, if, they, if a man's blood is shed, uh, then for that man's blood, another man's blood will be shed. In other words, capital punishment, basically what, Jesus, what uh, God was talking about in Genesis 9. And he uses that phrase, their blood will be required of him. Basically, Reuben's saying, look, we deserve to die for this. We could basically get the death penalty for this. This is serious stuff. Didn't I warn you about this? Now, if you drop down to verse 25, we see that it says that Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain. So as he's going to send them back, he fills their sacks with grain and to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give uh, his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored. There it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Now this is the, this is the cry of the guilty conscience, isn't it? Here, Joseph, in one sense, could be being gracious. He could be trapping them, but he could be being gracious. But all they can think of, We're busted. Uh, their hearts fail and they think, oh man, what's going to happen to us? What, why is God doing this? They see themselves as under God's chasing. They see themselves in a place where they're assuming God is doing this to them. 
Now, before we move on to the next point, I want to make it clear about this idea of that reconciliation comes with pain, and specifically this pain of guilt. We tend to think guilt is bad. But guilt isn't bad. Guilt has a part to play in our lives, especially in our lives as believers. Guilt has a part to play. Because here's a reality. There are things that we ought to feel guilty about. And there, it's, there's a healthiness to when we recognize that that guilt is reaping what we've sown, that we, or we recognize we will reap what we sow for that guilt. That's a healthy thing for us to see. There's going to be consequences for our actions. And it's healthy for us to see that that consequence can come from the, is going to come from the hand of God somehow. It's not wrong to feel that guilt. It's not necessarily even bad to feel that guilt. It's a necessary part of the process of reconciliation. Now what's wrong is when we or others use a person's guilty conscience to manipulate them. That's wrong. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is God is doing a work in these brothers. Before they can reconcile, they have to recognize where they've been wrong. They have to recognize the weight of it. They have to see the depth of it. But there's another kind of pain as well. That's what we see in verse 23. It's the pain of remembering. It says, but they did not know that Joseph understood them. So they're saying these things in earshot of Joseph. He lets them out of the cell after three days. He makes arrangements for for one of them to stay back. It's going to be Simeon. The rest of them are going to go uh, back. And as they're talking about their guilt, as they're going, man, this this is God getting us back. This is God dealing with us because of how badly we treated our brother. And we were reaping what we sowed. We should get a death penalty. This is serious stuff. God's dealing with us. He hears them speaking in Hebrew. He's speaking to them in the Egyptian language through an interpreter, but they don't know that he understands Hebrew. So they're saying this in Hebrew, and he understands everything. It says, so they do not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke through that interpreter. Verse 24 says, and he turned away from them, and he wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. He turned and wept. Why did he weep? Do you remember what we just saw back in uh, chapter 41? When we see after God's exalted Joseph, and then he gets this Egyptian wife, and he has two children, what do you name his first child? You remember? Manasseh. What does Manasseh mean? Forget. He, he said, God has caused me to forget my pain, which obviously we talked about doesn't make much sense because every time he says Manasseh, he's reminded. But still, you're talking about a man who wants to forget. He wants to not live in the past. It's the past. I want to move on. It's 20 years ago. It doesn't matter anymore. I want to move past how I've been sinned against. And here his brothers are brought to him beyond his control. He knows he has them in his hand, life or death. Their life or death in his hand. And as they begin to share about their guilt, as they begin to share about what they're culpable for, he is just overwhelmed with emotion. He's reminded about all the pain he's been through. He's reminded about what's just happening right before his eyes and it's overwhelming for him. I wonder if this is often why we don't want to pursue reconciliation. Because the pain of guilt, because the pain of testing, because the pain of remembering is just too big. Let's not talk about too, too, too many serious things. Let's not try to deal with the pain that's been in our, 
our lives before us. Let's not do that. Let's, yeah, reconciliation is too painful. I'll just say, I forgive him. I'm a Christian. I have to forgive. I forgive him. And let's just move on. Let's not pursue reconciliation. Well, God doesn't always let us do that. Especially with brothers and sisters in Christ, God will bring us to a place where he says, look, you need to reconcile with this. Verse 29. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of, of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your household and be gone and bring your youngest brother to me. And so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men, and I will grant uh, your brother, uh, and I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now, we've talked so far on this road of reconciliation. We've talked that everyone needs it. We've we've made the point that everyone needs reconciliation, that there's hope for reconciliation because God is both sovereign and has given us His revelation. We've just talked about the fact that there's pain. In pursuing uh, reconciliation, it's a pain that really is unavoidable. But let's not miss out to these other hindrances to reconciliation. And the first hindrance I see illustrated here is what I'm going to call the the fear of further loss. See, let's be honest. When we've broken fellowship with somebody, when there's been a break in a relationship with somebody, there's been a loss, hasn't there? Maybe it's your fault. You're the one who sinned against somebody else. And so the relationship was broken and you think, I I don't want to make it worse or I don't want to make somebody else mad because I'm trying to reconcile with this person. Or maybe somebody sinned against you and you think, well, you know, burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. So I'm not letting that happen. It's the fear of further loss. And, And you have to understand that as this is being explained to Jacob, that Jacob is, is, I'm sure, thinking to himself, no way, I can't believe this. You've left Simeon back there? I can, I can imagine that the brothers themselves are thinking, okay, I, 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 we need to get back there and deal with this issue, but there's this risk of Simeon and possibly Benjamin's lives, and so they're trying to butter up their father for this. There's a risk involved for them going back to Egypt. There's a risk involved when we want to pursue reconciliation. Have you ever tried to reconcile with somebody and ha- they won't have it? And not only do you remember the pain that was there initially, but you're, you're given more pain. It's like salt on the wound. And there's that risk involved. But not only that, it says in verse 35, then as they explained this to their father, it happened as they emptied their sacks, surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. So remember, it was just, they thought it was just the one brother before. Now it's like everybody. So now they're thinking, okay, this is a big deal. This is our lives. We're going to be seen as those who stole grain from Egypt. They could even come after us. So now they're thinking, it's not just our brothers who are at risk, it's all of us now. We're at risk. We could die through this process. The fear of further loss. You ever thought about the fact that the Bible teaches 
that Jesus died for the sins of all men. That's what it says. It says, Christ died, Paul writes to Timothy, Christ died for all men, especially those who believe. Which tells us Christ didn't just die for believers, he died for all people, but that sacrifice is accounted to the people who believe. So in a very real sense, what Jesus did on the cross, his suffering on the cross, was sufficient for every man's sin. Everyone that, every sin that anyone's ever done, what Christ did is enough for that. That's great news, isn't it? But listen, he did that realizing the majority of people would reject him. Think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. We, we worry about the risk of further loss. But Jesus was not just thinking, okay, I'm going to die for these few billion people who will actually believe, uh, not for the other ones. And what I'll do is I'll die for them and then I'll know I'll get exactly what I'm going for. Now don't get me wrong, God being God, he knows exactly who's going to believe. He knew exactly uh, who he was dying for. He knew exactly who would believe that. But what I'm saying to you, Jesus reached out to people. He sacrificed for people. He suffered for people he knew would reject him. I mean, it was Jesus who chose Judas. You see, following Jesus means pursuing reconciliation with people even if there's the risk that they won't receive it, because we don't have that guarantee. I mean, guys, listen, this is really important because especially in the relationships that we have, think about your marriage relationships. Think about when those little wedges get there between you and your spouse. And you know you should reconcile. You should make it right. But you don't. You just think, well, just ignore it. Don't worry about it. I'm not talking about little things that we should ignore. I'm talking about habits or behaviors or the way we relate to each other that's just obviously not what God would want. And you don't deal with those issues. And years pass. And that wedge goes deeper and deeper and deeper and the separation gets wider and wider and wider. And you're afraid if we don't, you know, you're afraid, but if I deal with this, it could just really, it could, the wedge could go all the way and it could split it in half completely. And you're afraid. Listen, you've got to take the risk. Because here's the guarantee, if you don't do anything, it will, it will dissolve. It will go pear-shaped. Even if you never get divorced, you can, you can still remain married, you know, and not be reconciled in marriage. So these guys are afraid of what might happen if they go back to Egypt. It says in verse 36, And Jacob their father said, have you, uh, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, Kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone if any calamity uh, should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair, hair with sorrow to the grave. In other words, I'm going to die. I can't live without him. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because this brings up, in a sense, really the other hindrance to reconciliation. It's what I'm going to call the wrong view of self. 
See, we have, with Jacob's responses and Reuben's responses, really three attitudes that show a wrong view of self. And these, these are the same attitudes that we take into relationships and that keep us from reconciling. First we see in verse 36 where Jacob says, all things are against me. In other words, his mindset is, I'm purely a victim in this. He who continues to show favoritism. He who has been a deceiver is pretty much his whole life. He who is treating his sons horribly. He says, I'm just a victim in all this. Let let me make something really clear. If we don't recognize that we've been victims of sin, we will walk around in condemnation. If we don't recognize that people have sinned against us, we will walk around in condemnation. We'll think every bad thing that ever happens to us is our fault. I've happened. This happens a lot to people who've been abused. If, if you are one of the people, and I'm sure there are people here statistically who have been abused as a child, it's easy for the children who have been abused to think of themselves as it's my fault that I was abused. You're afraid to make yourself a victim because you feel like that, in a sense, keeps you vulnerable to that attack, so you blame yourself somehow. But that victim mentality is important to a degree. You have to see, yes, I have been sinned against. But here's the other extreme, and this is probably way more popular in our culture today, is that everything that bad happens is because I'm a victim. So even when people do bad things, well, they only do that bad thing because of bad things happen to them. And so they only see themselves as victims and they never see themselves as perpetrators. You know what happens when you don't see yourself as a perpetrator? When you don't see yourself as culpable for the sins you've committed. You know what happens? If you don't see what you've done as sin, but only as you're a victim of sin, if you don't see it as your sin, then how are you going to get reconciled with God? How are you going to access the cross? So that mentality that says, I'm only a victim. All things are against me. That's a wrong view of self. Now, in a real sense, he was a victim. It was hard for him to have this happen. His sons did send his youngest son into slavery, and they had no, he had no idea that happened. So in a sense, he was a victim, but he wasn't only a victim. Seeing yourself as only a victim is not going to ever lead to reconciliation. Also, what does Reuben say? Reuben says, hey, Dad, Dad, I'll, I'll do it. You can kill my sons if I don't bring them back. In other words, this is the attitude we might want to call, I'll be the hero here. I'll solve the problem. Here I am to save the day. That also won't lead to reconciliation. You can't be the one to change people's hearts. You cannot. That's why the scripture says, as much as depends on you, make peace with all men. Because you're limited on what you can do. So you can only do what you can do to make reconciliation and the rest is up to the other people. So if you think, I'm the hero here, I'll I'll make this happen. No, you won't. Trust me, I try all the time. I want to be the hero. That's my personality. I want to fix. I want to save. I want to make it happen. And so I try to rush in there. I'll take care of this. Let's talk this through. And all I do half the time is make it worse. Then then in trying to reconcile two people, now they're both mad at me. (laughs) So now there's three bits of reconciliation that have to take place. Don't try to be the hero. Know this. If you get nothing else from today's study, know this. There's only one hero in Scripture. His name is Jesus. Reuben says, I'll be the hero. 
But what happens, and Jacob's second response is this, right? I can't live without my son. I can't live without this. Here's another thing that happens, why reconciliation doesn't happen. Because you know what? Reconciliation is a process. In fact, this is why we're only going to verse or uh, to the end of chapter 42 today. Chapter 42, 43, 44, and 45 actually all go together. But one, I didn't kill you, want to kill you with four chapters. <laughs> and two, I wanted us to feel that. It's still not fixed. It's still in the middle. It's just still not fixed. That's okay. You see, the mindset that says, I can't live unless this relationship is reconciled, forgets that that relationship is never going to be as important as your relationship with God. What we need to have reconciled above all things is our relationship with God. Let me close with this. Look what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes this. He says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, just to be clear here, this word of reconciliation has to do with us telling the world, telling people who don't know Jesus yet that they can be reconciled with God through Jesus. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about here, the ministry of reconciliation is the, uh, is the vertical ministry. It's us telling people they can be reconciled with God. I am telling you now, this right now, I'm doing the ministry of reconciliation. You, right now, can be reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done. Because all, all the sins that you've committed against people, they're also sins against God. Because they're made in God's image and God has called us to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And because we failed to do that, we failed to obey God. Therefore, they're not just sins against others, they're sins against God. But God doesn't wait for us to make it right with Him. God sent Christ. I'll read it again. God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus. He reconciles us to himself. He says, here's the conditions of peace. Here's the conditions of reconciliation. Here's how you can be right with me. And that's far more important than you being right with one another. In fact, it's so much more important that until you're right with me, you're not going to be able really to get right with one another. You know what gives us the courage, motivation, and power to reconcile with people who have sinned greatly against us? The reality that God's made a way for us to be reconciled with Him. See, when Jesus died on the cross, He didn't just die for the sins I've committed against Him and others. He died for the sins that were committed against me. So that because he's already paid for those sins, I can hand out to somebody, I can hold out to somebody and say to them, I want to be right with you. I want us to be reconciled. And I have hope for that. And I want that because I know Christ already paid for that. That's why unless we get reconciled from, from, with God, other things don't happen. It's amazing. When I was in, in California, I did a lot of marriage counseling with non-believers. Because they would try all the secular counseling and it wouldn't work. It was super expensive and it didn't work. 
And so they would have like a friend that worked. They would say, well, why don't you go talk to Pastor so-and-so? Uh, well, how much is it? It's free. Just make an appointment and he'll meet with you. And I had people come and we'd share with them about what reconciliation was. And these people were desperate to try to sort out their marriages. And I used to say to them all the time, listen, what happens if you sort out your marriage today? What if that all works just the way it happens? What do you have to look forward to the next 20 or 30 years? Oh, it'll be bliss. It'll be perfect. Really? Do you honestly think that you, as you are, and you as you are, are going to make some sort of bliss and perfect relationship? Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. So what do you think is going to happen? Well, we're probably going to struggle the whole way through. That's right. So what motivation are you going to have to stay together? You sense this is important, but what motivation are you going to have to work things out here? Well, that's why we're here to tell you the the motivation is that you can be reconciled with God because what you think you want to find in that relationship, you're actually only going to find in a relationship with a living God. And you can only have a relationship with a living God by being reconciled through Jesus. I, I don't know what relationships are broken here. I don't know in your lives what relationships need reconciliation. I, I don't have any words of knowledge as of now. If one comes to me, I'll give it to you, but I don't have anything right now. But be willing to bet that all of us are thinking of somebody that we've sinned against and we're not in relationship with anymore or someone who's sinned against us. There's definitely a season, an appropriate season for us to have distance from other people, especially those who have sinned against us. Pursuing reconciliation does not mean putting yourself in a position where you're encouraging somebody to sin again in the same way. And what I mean by that is, let's say, for instance, that you know the person you know you need reconciliation with is the person that abused you. That doesn't mean that you therefore put yourself in the place to be abused again, nor would you put your children in a place for them to be abused. That, that, that doesn't, you would never do that. It would be wrong to do that. It would not be helpful for them or for you. It doesn't mean that like if somebody's ripped you off in a business deal, I had to deal with that a few times at our church back in California where two guys in the fellowship and they start a business and one rips off the other in the business you're thinking, man, believers are not supposed to be living this way. It doesn't mean that you therefore say, oh, I want to reconcile with you. Let's do another business deal. <laughs> you can forgive and there'll be reconciliation and still be the wise like, you know, maybe this isn't the best person to partner in this way. But I want you to, to understand that, that what God wants to do is He wants you to be in a place where you're not allowing these other relationships to come between you and your relationship with the Lord. Because Jesus said, didn't he? He said, listen, if you won't forgive this person, neither will I forgive you. He taught us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's a, it's a radically important aspect to following Jesus is being willing to be reconciled with each other. <clears throat> 